You know, certainly I would never do this, of course, but maybe some of you have heard a public speaker, whether a preacher or some other public speaker for a work thing or whatever, say something like this. Well, the real point of what I'm saying is, and then 20 minutes later, you have no idea what that real point of what they were saying is, right? I mean, that is kind of a thing that we as public speakers are trying to do. We're explaining something, and then we get to the point where we really want to tell you what it is, but then we say the point is, and then we ramble, right? And so this morning, I want to start out with what the really the point of the sermon is going to be. I'm going to give it to you now. We'll return to it at the end, but kind of in between we are going to sort of take some twists and turns along the way, but I think you'll see how it all comes together. And sort of the main thrust or the main point of the sermon is this. If someone were to come to you and ask you, tell me about Christianity, tell me what it's about, tell me the main focus, the point of it all, what do you got to do, what is behind it, the answer to that question would be Christ. Christ is the main point of it all. It all fits around him. And today, as we go through our passage, we are going to come back to the fact that Christ is the focal point of Christianity, and without him, there is no Christianity. So let's go on in Acts. We're going to continue on here in verse 22. So uh, Peter is giving his speech. As you remember, the Holy Spirit had come earlier in chapter 2, and now he's giving this big speech about it. He had mentioned, and we talked about it last week, he quotes Acts, uh, Joel 2, and when he talks about Joel 2 and its fulfillment, and we talked about how that might be fulfilled in Acts 2, and then he continues on, he says, men of Israel, which of course I would once again argue this is men and women, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So we're mentioning this person, of course, the focal point of everything, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just going to make a little nerdy point about Greek translation. Jesus of Nazareth. In Greek, what this says is, Jesus, article like a, an, or the, then it says, Nazareth. So the literal translation would be, Jesus the Nazareth, or something like that. But then the form of the word is a genitive, and so sometimes the genitive can be possessive. So you say, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus from Nazareth. You say, well, which one's right? I mean, they're all right. They're all right. So sometimes when you challenge yourself, what's the literal translation? It's kind of hard because you really couldn't say Jesus the Nazareth. It makes absolutely no sense because it's the, the ending of the word that tells you that it might be possessive. Of course, there's other types of genesis, uh, uh, genitives besides possessive. This is just one. It's popular. But the most common way that we translate a genitive in Greek is using the word of it makes it the most generic possible so the people reading it can maybe decide what it might mean. But this is always the challenge of translators when trying to translate something literally. So I think Jesus of Nazareth is a great translation. Of works fine. It's the most generic way you could possibly say it. 
without pushing you to some sort of incorrect meaning. So Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. These signs and these wonders, even Josephus, who likely didn't actually follow Christ particularly, he even talks about how people attested to the works and the signs that God did. So Jesus did these things, and now the Spirit's coming, and this means something too, and he's going to continue to talk about it. Then he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this Jesus who did these works and these wonders, you killed him. But this Jesus, he was delivered. He was, he was brought to be killed. And it was part of God's plan and his foreknowledge. <sighs> the age-old debate. The definite plan, the foreknowledge. What does this mean? So if God planned... For Jesus to die. Is it safe to say God killed him? So you have this trouble here. You have this situation where you have this being, God, who knows everything. Past, present, and future. Knows it all. He has ultimate power to control past, present, and future. And so how is it possible that things happen and God is not at fault, that God has no culpability? How is it possible? And then you might say this. Well, God gives us free will. Okay. So you're saying God gives you free will and it looks like this. Well, this event's going to happen and I'm God and I'd really like to do something about it, but hands are tied. I can't do anything. Free will. Can't do anything. So then Pastor Joel prays. He prays. He says, Joel, God, God, would you do something about this? And God, what is he going to say? Can't do it. Can't do it. I gave this free will thing out, and now I am incapable, or I'm choosing not to, or whatever. But if you say, well, no, no, no. Even though there's free will, God could still come and do something about it. So if God knows what's going to happen, and he can do something about it, how is he not somehow responsible? And to me, free will isn't enough to take away his culpability because that's acting like God has handcuffs on and he can't do anything about it. And I don't think any of us agree that God is handcuffed and he can't come in and do something about it. So I'm going to try to illustrate my way of explaining this, okay? And I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to argue this like this is the most important thing I've ever believed in my entire life. And at the end, I'm going to tell you, it's not that big a deal, okay? So just, just be warned that I'm going to really go for this. But I understand this is a very, very difficult thing. A lot of people had debating for a long time. So in order to give you this illustration on how I think it works anyway, I have asked a couple people to come and help me. So if Meredith and Colton, if you could come up and help me with this illustration. Now, as many of you know, Meredith and Colton are dating, and that's the only true part of this story. The rest of this is going to be fair, pretty much made up. Colton and Meredith are dating, but you know, time is going on. They go off to college, and they decide to go to the same college, and they, they're, they're mad, madly in like, as you can see, and um, 
they get this professor. His, his name is Professor Joel. So Professor Joel is a professor. You know, but as time goes on, they start to change a little bit. See, um, Colton gets is feeling pretty cool. So uh, he gets a jacket. Now, now, he can't afford the jacket, so he just kind of steals it. But, you know, when you're, you need to be cool, you need to be cool. It's just one little thief of a jacket. And so he gets himself a jacket, and he keeps going to class. And, and uh, Professor Joel's, you know, he's teaching away, and he sees, oh, Colton got a new jacket. I'm pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure that was Ben's jacket, like yesterday, but I guess it's Colton now. And, and let's pretend Professor Joel, like, he just has this incredible insight that he would never normally have. I know this, I, what's happening. I know he, he stole it. So, so, so Meredith starts to get concerned, you know. She's worried. She knows that her dearly beloved man she's in like with has stole this jacket. So she's concerned. So she's stressed. So she starts vaping with a vaping pen, which I'm not sure which church she went to to get the vaping pen with the church name on it. But here you go. There's your uh, vaping pen. She, I mean, this is stressful. I mean, Colton is, yeah, she, she, yeah so she, it's going bad. But, you know, Colton, Colton can't, can't hardly help himself. And I'm watching. I'm like, okay, well, now, now, uh, now Meredith's bringing some vaping pens to class, and that's not good. And so Colton, he, he then decides he just has to have this fedora. So he, he goes ahead and steals that, and he's just getting cooler all the time. And, you know, Meredith, she's frustrated. She's vaping like a champ. And, you know, she's started to make some new friends, too. And I see it all happening. I know what's going on. I can see the tension start to rise. I know they're kind of mad at each other, so on and so forth. And, and as Meredith gets some new friends, they're kind of more Western. So, you know, she starts <laughs> riding horses and, and stuff. And I see the divide coming. And, you know, they're not getting along. And then, you know, Colton, I don't know if you guys knew this, Colton's really the only one that knows this, that if you get glasses that are way too small, they're even cooler. So um, he gets himself some sunglasses, stole those from a convenience store somewhere, and so on and so forth. And I mean, the stress on Meredith is getting so bad, the vaping just isn't cutting it, so she just decides to go with the full-blown tobacco, and she starts with the pipe. It's, it's, it's more respectable anyway. So as you can see... As this all develops, I can see that this is really not going well. And one day, Colton just really sets Meredith off, really just makes her mad. And I, and I watch it. I'm watching it all happen. And guess what? Not only am I watching it happen, I could step in and stop anything I wanted. And then suddenly, Meredith gets so mad, she decides she's going to punch Colton. Now, I could stop this right now. I, have, I know what's going to happen. I could, I could make her not do it. I could, I could step in. I'm just going to let her do it. She punches Colton. That's dedicated to the illustration right there. And you say to yourself, Meredith punches Colton. Whose fault was it? Was it my fault? I knew she was going to punch him. I saw it happening. I could have stopped it. I had full control. I had full knowledge. And if I were God, I knew past, present, and future. I could have known everything about it. And I have full control. My sovereignty is not given up in any way. But I would still say it was Meredith's fault that she punched him, right? She made the decision to do that. Even though I could have stopped her, it doesn't mean it was my responsibility. It was still hers. And that is how I see how this works. So thank you, you guys. So much appreciate you helped me out. You can return the stolen goods. 
sometime. That jacket is a little big for you anyway, so I'm not too worried about keeping on holding on to that. All right. So that is my way of explaining God's honest free will. So I don't like the idea of saying, well, God can't do anything about it because of free will, because to me this takes away the power and the sovereignty of God. So I think when God decided to send Jesus Christ and when he was going to, did he know Jesus was going to get killed? Did he know he was going to be um, crucified? Of course, of course, of course. Was it part of God's plan that God was going to be crucified? Of course, of course, of course. Is God culpable? Is he responsible for his death? No. Right? He's not. He's not. Because I don't think that in the situation I gave you, though I knew it was going to happen, I am not the one that should be punished for the wrongdoing of the punching that should going on. So, so maybe I thought to myself, you know what? Colton could probably use a good punch anyway, so maybe we're going to have to you know, discipline Meredith, but you know, I'm just going to let it happen. And so God seems to allow us to happen. Because to me, otherwise, it gets very, very hard to describe how God really has control over everything, but then you want to like not make him responsible for the bad things that happen. So I, I think he actually has total control. And these bad things that happen, while he's not responsible for them, they are part of his plan. So Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan. It was his plan. He knew it from the very beginning. He knew it was going to happen before the foundation of the world, before he even created anything. He knew he was going to have to send his son to die. It was all part of the plan. The way he created things, it was set up to happen. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These lawless men are almost definitely a reference to the Romans who were a, a, a part of killing of Jesus. But I think it probably also includes the Jews, the leaders of the Jews who helped to have Jesus killed because even though technically they had the law, they were not following the law. And we'll see how the Jews were culpable as we go on here. We go to verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. So God raises Jesus Christ from the dead. Loosing the, the pangs is like birth pangs, something really painful. Have you ever seen the video where they hook up something to the guy to try to make him feel like what childbirth is uh, really like and how painful it is? Hilarious. There's a few really good ones out there. You should watch those. So the pain of death, he's raised up from it because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter is giving the story of Christ's death and resurrection, his defeat of death. Verse 25, for David says concerning him. And now we have the good old Old Testament quote. My favorite. Here we go. David says concerning him, Psalms, and this is Psalm 16, 8 through 11, is what he is referring back to. And this is a psalm of confidence. Sometimes the psalms have names like the imprecatory psalm, if you've ever heard of that one. That one I only remember because it's got a cool name. But this is a psalm of confidence. It says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So when David writes this psalm, and you're thinking about what he's saying here, I saw the Lord always before me. Who's he talking about? Himself, David. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So we're definitely talking about David this whole time. And if you're reading it back in the Old Testament for the first time, I still think you're thinking he's talking about David. Therefore, my heart was glad. Whose heart was glad? 
David. And my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Still seems very, very confident here. We can still see how he's definitely talking about David in this quote. We go to verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is like the Greek equivalent to Sheol, or it's a place where you gather for judgment. There's some, some you know, Hades and hell are different places, so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into all that right now. You'll not abandon my soul into Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, I think if you're reading this in the Old Testament, you could see Holy One still as David, possibly. I mean, David's not as holy as Christ is, but... We could maybe see his holy one sometimes would reference a priest. So, you know, you could call a holy one a priest. So a human could, could be referred to as holy one. But you can see this not abandoning my soul in Hades or let your holy one see corruption doesn't fit David super good. Right? It doesn't really fit David that well. So even though the previous verses do seem to fit with David, these do not. And, and while I think you could figure out something that it was said back if you'd read it in the Old Testament, I think Peter here is going to open our eyes to what the psalm was kind of giving a picture of what was going to happen next, the foreshadowing. It says, Continuing on in Psalms, you have made known to me the paths of life, which works great for David. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Once again, works with David. You can see this psalm of confidence. You're going to make me glad. You're going to be full of your presence. You're going to make known to me the paths of my life. Then we go to verse 29, and we go back to Peter's speech. He says, brothers, once again, I think this is men and women. I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Now, patriarch usually actually is usually only refers to like the 12 sons of Jacob or maybe Abraham, but it actually refers to David as this patriarch. About the patriarch that he both died and was buried. What happened to that David guy? He died. He was buried. As a matter of fact, and his tomb is with us to this day. He died and was buried. You can go visit it. So apparently in that time, you could go visit David's tomb. We're pretty sure it was in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there are stories of people trying to raid David's tomb. So back, John Hyrcanus in like 135 B.C., he tried to raid it. And later, apparently, Herod tried to raid it. As a matter of fact, there's a story that when Herod came to raid the tomb of David, that the flames came and killed two guards and they stopped the effort from happening. And once that happened, Herod decided to build a marble memorial to the tomb. And so likely this marble memorial to the tomb existed in their day. So when Peter is referring to this tomb that David was in, everybody knew what he was talking about. Oh yeah, the tomb, David, really important person. They put a big marble thing up on there after what happened to Herod's men had taken place. And so where is David? He's, he's dead and he's still there. You can go see him. Being therefore a prophet, saying that David was a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So once again, he's saying, so David's a prophet. And what David knew was one day God was going to continue on his legacy through the Messiah. That was part of the Davidic covenant, which is part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is like all over the Bible like crazy. So David knows one of his descendants is going to be on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter tells us when he says this line in Psalms that what Peter is referencing, what Peter is foreshadowing is actually the resurrection of Christ. When the Holy One will not see corruption, that was a reference to Christ. So the Messiah will rise from the dead as Scripture sows, Peter argues. That God raises Jesus. Therefore, who is Jesus? The Messiah. And the Son of God. Because if you think about what you need to say to convince the Jews to follow Christ, what do you need to prove that Jesus is? The Messiah. He's the Messiah. We've been talking about him from Genesis 12 on. Oh, man. If you really want to go back from Genesis 1 on to the Proto-Evangelion with Adam and Eve and the bruising in the head and the heel, right? This is this person we've been talking about forever. And now Peter says, this is him. And this is how I know he's him. Because when Jesus references, or when David references this person, this holy one that will not see corruption, when Jesus raised from the dead, he fulfilled that prophecy. His flesh did not see corruption. I would also argue that this really strongly kind of argues for a bodily resurrection. What's this comparison being made? David, how do we know he's not resurrected? Because his body's there. So there have been many people that have argued over the years. They've even got a lot of people to follow them that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, but it was like a spiritual resurrection, right? You've heard of this kind of thinking that Jesus' resurrection was not actually physical. His body never came back. It was just in some sort of spiritual sense. And I'm saying here, if you're comparing what Jesus did to David in the tomb, who you can go visit right now, and you say, no, 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 you can't visit him because his body's gone. This is a bodily resurrection. So when the back in the early 1900s, when people were arguing over the Christianity, and some people were denying the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, this is why when the the fundamentalist papers were written way back then. They had to include, as one of the five fundamentals, depending on which list you read, the bodily resurrection of Christ. This is what Peter says is happening, and I would argue that once you reject that, you're just sort of undermining Christianity to the point, like, what's the point anymore? Peter's whole entire argument for salvation on why these people, these Jews, should become saved, why they should turn from their wicked ways, however you want to say it. His whole argument is because Jesus is the Messiah, and we know this because he fulfilled the prophecies in the Old Testament that he was going to raise from the dead. So if he doesn't raise from the dead, Christianity is dead. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the people that were there, and he's speaking, he said, we, we all saw this. We, we actually physically saw Jesus when he was raised from the dead being therefore exalted at the right hand of God so who's the one that David referenced who's the one that gets, comes at the right hand of God it's Jesus and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit 
He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Where did this Holy Spirit thing come from? This crazy thing that's just happening right now. Where did it come from? It came from God through Jesus. Without Jesus, without him being the conduit from God to us, there is no Holy Spirit. You say, you want to see the proof other than me telling you the story, other than me re reading some old text in the Old Testament and claiming that it's fulfilled in Christ? You want something else? Explain this Holy Spirit thing to me. Because this example of the Holy Spirit pouring out the people speaking in tongues is also part of the proof that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. For David did not ascend into the heavens, right? He didn't ever, the whole, he saw corruption, right? He, but he himself says, David says in Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord, meaning God, said to my Lord, meaning Christ, sit at my right hand. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus, whom you crucified. Once again, the core of Christianity is Jesus Christ. The Spirit came to provide the evidence as as going along with the prophecies in the Old Testament. I'd like us to think about this morning as Christianity is the core of the Christian message. You say, so if someone asks you, tell me about Christianity. What do you got to do? Would you start with something like, well, you really got to take communion. Or, you know, what? I mean, well, well you, you take communion, you know, you take, you do the, you know, you, you do the baptism thing. That's important. You should go to church. You should um, sing to God, you know, you should... You should, you, should give, you should give money. You should help the poor. You should be honest. You should, you should follow. Are all those, should you do all those things? Sure, 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 sure. Of course I want you to think you should take communion. Of course I think baptism is important. Of course I think all those things matter. But if you were just like trying to explain to someone what the core of Christianity is, and you start with anything other than, well, let me tell you about this guy. His name's Jesus Christ. You started in the wrong place. You start on the so maybe all those other things end up coming down the pike. But the relationship with Jesus Christ, there's this person you need to know. It's not a, there's these things that you need to do. Right? There is no list of things that you need to do that is what makes Christianity what it is. It is the person that you know. Now my mom grew up in a church and she was infant baptized there, and they basically told her, and her understanding was, well, I got baptized when I was a kid, so I'm good to go. I'm going straight to heaven. And she'd say part of the reason she left and decided to, to go to a Baptist church was she said, you know, I just never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can get a lot of things about Christianity wrong. You can get your view on the foreknowledge and whatever of God, completely wrong. You can, you can mess up. You can, you can do a lot of things that are dumb, make a lot of mistakes, but guess what? Those aren't what gets you. That is not what makes you a Christian. It's that relationship 
with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. You know, sometimes we don't carry our end of the relationship very good. Sometimes we, we drop the ball. More times we like to think. But that relationship is what matters. And so as we get together, and we, we sometimes debate or discuss what theology might mean or whatever. I just want you to think about two things. First is this. Is your relationship what matters? You know, sometimes theology is a big prohibitor of our relationship. It actually becomes a hurdle. We just get caught up in the fun, at least I think it's fun, fun theology, and we lose that relationship. The second is, but the people that you know that aren't Christians, do they even know? Do they even know that what makes Christianity important to you is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do all they know about you is, here's a few things I, I do different. Maybe I go to church on Sunday or I don't swear or I whatever. Is that, is that all they know about you that they, that they would think that's the only thing different? Or do they really understand that it's your relationship with Jesus Christ that is what makes Christianity forward to your life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just, we just pray this morning that if we've been caught up, even sometimes we think of good things like learning your word or whatnot, I just pray, Lord, they'd never be a hindrance relationship with you. We know from your word that Jesus Christ is our conduit, our conduit to knowing you. And I just pray that we would tap into that conduit, that we wouldn't let distractions of the world or even distractions with our own church keep us from that relationship with you. Lord, we know we're, we're not good at it. We know we're not a great person to have a relationship with, but we just thank you so much that you're always there for us when we come to you. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.